0: This week, we speak with Ty Sabano from SciSense. In the news segment, we catch up on Volns and iPhones, dangers of SIM swaps, seven steps for, I, for AppSec, buzzing, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly.
1: This is a Security Weekly production. False positives suck. With so many mobile apps to test, how much time will you waste on false positives? Eliminate them today with NowSecure. Only NowSecure automates static, dynamic, and interactive testing on real Android and iOS devices. Now you get speed, accuracy, and efficiency for DevOps, plus the broadest coverage of security, compliance, and privacy issues. Why waste time on false positives? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash NowSecure to learn how to scale your mobile app sec testing with NowSecure. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies protecting over 7500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week, Signal Sciences' next-gen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences' patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com/psw forward slash
0: Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 75, recorded September 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima. And I'm here with Matt Alderman.
2: Hey, Matt. Happy Monday, Monday Night Football tonight. That's why I'm in my Raiders colors, because if I wear my Broncos colors, they'll definitely lose tonight.
0: (laughs) Excellent planning ahead. And um, we'll have to find out next week what John's doing today, because we're missing John again. Um, We miss you, man. Come back. Two announcements. We have exciting news about the Security Weekly webcast program. We are now partnered with ISC Squared as an official CPE provider. If you attend any of our webcasts, you will be receiving one CPE credit per webcast. Register for one of our upcoming webcasts with Stephen Smith and Jeff Roucher of Logarithm, or Tom Stitt of ExtraHop, or both by going to securityweekly.com slash webcasts if you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts you can find our on-demand library at securityweekly.com on demand security weekly will be at hacker halted in atlanta georgia this october 10th through 11th if you are attending and would like to sponsor an interview please submit your interest on our conference request form at securityweekly.com booking ec council is offering our listeners a 100 dollars discount to attend the two-day conference use discount code HH19SW, when you register or go to securityweekly.com slash HackerHalted and register there. Ty Sabano is an information security leader with over 13 years of experience, mainly in financial technology organizations. Currently, Ty is the Cloud Chief Information Security Officer at SciSense who acquired Periscope Data in May 2019. Ty's career has been focused on developing application and product security programs for Capital One, JP Morgan Chase, Lending Club, and Target. Key areas of knowledge include developing security champions, threat modeling, secure code training, static code analysis, component analysis, dynamic analysis, penetration testing, and red teaming. Ty's security mentality has been concentrated on enabling engineering and product teams to securely move at the speed of the business to make it a competitive advantage. Ty graduated from Penn State University with a BS in Information Science and Technology and from Norwich University with an MS in Information Assurance. He currently holds a CISSP, CEH, CCSK, and CPT. To learn more, please visit TySabano.com. Well, hello, Ty. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it.
0: And, And I won't use
2: the Penn State thing against you, by the way, in this interview.
3: I mean, what's well, up with that? We got to start with football. I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it's football so you know. season. I'm
0: sorry, I'm a football guy. <laughs> we oh, got good, two man. people from Penn State on the line here, so uh, be careful. I think you're outnumbered at the moment.
2: <laughs> I, I am, but when when we're when we're done with the season, we'll see where we stack up.
3: <laughs> Fair
2: enough. <laughs> Sounds
0: good. Well, speaking of stacking up, I think Ty, you've stacked up um, quite a list of key areas of knowledge. I mean, I think you, you've pretty much ran the the full range of application and product security, um, a bunch of many different topics. So I'm kind of curious as we start to maybe a couple different paths we go on here. Is what have you seen in terms of apps appsec teams being centralized or decentralized, and what does it mean Re- regardless of that you know e- even th- that model of the teams how do you actually scale in one way or those others and what does scale mean to you with when dealing with appsec
3: yep i, I think that's always a tough question and any appsec program with any person that's been doing this for a while has to understand that it- it's specific to the organization and the attack surface and the threat model So when it comes to application security at scale, I think that's where we have a tough aspect to really consider. So if there's multiple lines of businesses and you start to get into dedicated functions, the big thing for me with running programs that I've always been very much against uh, is really the aspect that you're having pen testers, uh, threat modelers, secure code reviewers, you just have a series of people doing software security practices. And if they focus just on the same product, Um, Sometimes the passion can be there, but oftentimes if you're running the same assessment, same practice, same threat model, same targeted abuse cases, uh, you get kind of burnt out on it and your your longevity in that role doesn't really stack out. Uh, When you start to think of security at scale, say for a large bank and you have your AppSec team kind of moving around the organization they get to see so much more and they have an opportunity to interact with a lot more folks. So just on that premise, I've always been more on the centralized function because that way you can really organize your spend, make sure that you're maturing and growing people, and you can actually have a better pipeline of growing junior people into senior people, addressing that cybersecurity gap that everyone keeps talking about. So I, I don't know. I've, I've been more on the centralized focus. Uh, the decentralized, when it comes to more the agile world or the DevOps world, I see the benefit of individuals being in teams, uh, but not so much from the standpoint that they don't have that direct line back to the AppSec team.
2: Yeah, and I think yeah, so, that's an interesting challenge, right? If you think about centralized security teams, we potentially fall into the issues that we've seen over the years, which is they're they're kinda outside of the DevOps team, so they're outside of the CI C D process and therefore maybe a little behind when it comes to looking for security issues as part of that pipeline. And so how do you balance that tie, right? If centralization is good because you can see a lot of different things, how do you get aspects of that integration into the DevOps teams back so that you can shift left, for lack of a better term?
3: Yeah, like starting left, shifting left, uh, I I say shift throughout. I think the element there, uh, Matt, that you started to hint at is really, you don't have to be in the team, you just have to be part of the team. And what, what I mean by that is presence. Um, you know, PowerPoint over presence or just presentations over presence, it's it's de- DevOps and Agile are just a mindset, right? It's not a dedicated team or a function. Uh, sometimes they are, uh, we'll just leave that aside there. But I think the big element is always going to come back to: Are you present? So, are you going to go to stand up? Are you going to be part of the, you know, bug triage process? Are you going to join the team for retros? Those are the elements that allow you to be part of that systematic growth of community, that growth of mindset, and that opportunity to integrate. So, you know, uh, h- how do you accomplish that? Uh, show it up.
2: Yeah. Well, I I, I wish more security folks would show up, right? I think the (laughs) challenge is they sit over here to the side and and sometimes they don't have that conversation to actually be present as part of the original team. So one of the things I've always talked about for the past few years is, guys, ask the question. You know, talk to the DevOps teams, understand what's going on so you can get engaged in the process because if you're sitting over here in your little bubble, forget it.
3: Yeah, the bubble's never good. Um, I've called it the ivory tower a few times, depending on where the location of the seating is or how much cool stuff security has. Uh, but you're hitting it right on the head. Like, why, why not just be part of the team? Why not show up to where the team sits, uh, where the discussions are happening, as opposed to just waiting and complaining? Uh, If you're that security team, I'm just going to look out. If you're that security team waiting for customers to come to you or you're waiting for constituents in your company to come to you to say pen test or do a security review, you you better have a great marketing aspect to get the information out there so that they're engaging. However, the reality is most people want you to just show up. Most people just want you to be part of the conversation and not have to always invite you. I think it's figuring out the right cadence and the pattern within the organization of knowing what type of presence is necessary.
0: Yeah. And I really like how you're highlighting that participatory aspect of it. Cause you've even, you even said, you know, showing up to standups as a security person, you don't show up to standups to hand people and say, what, you know, where are you on this 100 count checklist? Of our you know our security <laughs> checklist you show up there to say what are you working on oh that sounds interesting have you considered this have you considered that and I think yep. that's what makes it a much more fruitful engagement a much more um successful way of actually building security into that you know into that application
3: yeah and I know you have the experience in the background right like that hundred questionnaire like 100 question questionnaire like it's not showing up and saying where we're at it's it's showing up and saying like how can I help? Or making sure that you're facilitating a lot of the answering of the questions. And and one of the benefits, I think, of doing this for a while, you, you want to make people's lives easier. So you should do the majority of the questions that you can answer, validate that they're correct, but then take the next step with the team and say, I think these are the top three risks that we should really be getting at. Um, or can I just peel off from the stand up and get some help?
0: So one of the challenges, though, is that it can always, it, I think it's fantastic to be Participating to have that model where you know AppSec is working with call them DevOps teams or just call them developers or engineers, whatever the product teams are. But one yeah. of the challenges is what happens when that gets really big. So I'm going to guess you've been in environments where you know a large web app is or a large number of web apps isn't in the dozens. It's probably going to be a little bit bigger than that. So what how, how do you tackle that? You know what does scale mean to you and how
3: do you tackle it? Yep. And I I think that's always the tough question. And and when you're in AppSec or information security, any team that has to work at scale, um, the average data point I think we've seen consistently is one application security engineer per 100 developers. That's like the base premise of ratio that we've seen over and over. So when you start to think about product, Uh, I don't think it's always the same. So if you have, say, a dozen applications and you know what's internet-facing, you know what's branded, uh, you know what's third-party developed and outsourced and where you put your contract language versus what's insourced. Uh, But when you start to think about that, say, 5,000 plus or 9,000 applications, it gets into a strange place. I can't deny that. Uh, But you have to rely on more systematic techniques to make sure that your hygiene is appropriate. So while 9,000 may sound scary, um, you start the risk ranking process or just profiling to get a better sense of what is the risk of these 9,000? Because what if 8,999 of them are all internal green screen systems for your call center and then you have one internet facing application that's purely for marketing, right? And I I think that's the element where if you take a step back, you don't panic and you bring a towel and you hang out for a little bit and you understand (laughs) where you're at in the grand scheme of how do you scale, um, you take that thought process, that risk ranking, you validate it with the business to make sure you're investing in the right places. And you're also staying in tune with the organization to say, where should we be investing our time and money, uh, especially if we're about to get acquired or if we're going to you know, do some acquisitions, maybe we're going to put more time and energy on that forefront. So it's a matter of like being smart based on data. But I think that's still a big challenge for
2: most security teams. I think uh IT teams in general, right that asset inventory, what applications do I have? are they internet facing? I mean just those basics of knowing which applications and, and how they're classified is not it, it's not easy for some organizations today and I think it only gets harder as things speed up from the business side and more stuff's getting deployed. Where is that inventory that you can use to really help get a really good risk assessment done to say, these are my top X apps in the environment?
3: Yep, and typically at that scale, you usually have a dedicated IT team that has to you know, budget for the amount of infrastructure, understand where the spend, who the owners are. So you can usually latch onto that and be a partner to the, the effort. Um, the system of truth, I think that's what we're hinting at. Like, where do you choose to put it? Where do you choose to gain from it as well. And I think that's an element, uh, looking back at the programs I've ran at scale, the system of truth is where everyone's already working. That's that's the watering hole. Maybe it's a place where people are pissed constantly because things are out of date, but if you can be part of the scenario of evolution, bringing more truth to it, having more touch points, I think a lot of the teams are gonna benefit from that effort. So when it comes to that n thousandth organization of applications, start simple you know mike and i were chatting about this maybe three questions maybe five questions whatever you want it to be it's fine but i think what is the accessibility of it right like is it internet facing or is it internal and then do you care about reputation and brand those are event-driven questions that i usually get into and if it's internet facing i usually ask authentication questions of you know the standard issued mfa that we're doing for all customers or maybe it's just username and password because it's a specific product that you know, maybe it's targeted a specific segment of the organization or maybe externally at customers, then we have an idea of the why behind the risk. Uh, then you get into more of the element of like, what's the data? And I think this is where a lot of AppSec teams trip up. If you don't have this inventory already, uh, you're about to empower a lot of other teams that may not be empowered. And PCI is one of them, Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, but the data elements within the application, you can start to just Click and shoot, like what are those things in that application? And then you can have that inventory effectively of what's going to be there. And then ultimately, outside of that, if you didn't get any of the business context because it wasn't internet facing and you didn't invent drive, uh, I definitely recommend an element of like what is the business risk. So typically that's defined in some sort of IT system. Uh, but if you're starting from scratch, you don't have like you know recovery time objective, recovery point objective, uh, things like that, um, you are going to have to partner with the organization to make the case for an app inventory, which, which might be an effort that security has to push. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, talking about you know app inventory, asset inventory. That goes back to absolutely the the basics, the good basics, but the basics of the programs. I'm curious, Ty, if you've seen when teams move to cloud or adopt you know cloud deployments. Are there, does that make actually asset inventory or even this analysis of what data is going into the apps, does that make it any easier? Or is there tooling that can actually make this easier for teams? Are they still stuck in the same you know, challenges of building up these inventories that they've had for 10, 20, even 30 years by now?
3: I think there's potential for making it easier. Having an inventory of what is infrastructure is nice to actually being able to use something like uh, AWS's CLI to pipe out, you know, what are our EC2 instances? What are our internet uh, facing like network interfaces, right? Like those are elements that are just systematic and it is the truth because it's not like some credit data center that's sitting in the back that may be used for testing or perhaps it's used for all of everything in the organization, but the change management process is through a clunky system that maybe the security team doesn't have access to. And I think moving to the cloud or the air quote, you know, just shifting to the cloud, like those are things where I think it's very empowering. I I think there are elements where you just have more systematic access. Now the flip side to that, like there shouldn't be an over-reliance on things like, you know, security tooling or native security controls like AWS Macy that are just gonna tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. But um, if you can snap in that additional touch point to say, hey, how truthful is our questionnaire? And you use something like Macy to say, oh, crap, this application now has uh, PCI data or something that we didn't realize. Well, feed that back into your profile. Your inventory becomes more truthful. Um, You have more awareness. And I think the same thing about data loss prevention um, and some of the newer emerging cloud-focused DLP tools that are out there today.
0: Yeah, I it, it sounds like it's, it's describing the, you know, that, that source of truth or that data is always going to be messy, but having a shorter feedback loop to build it up over time and just tease out the, you know, get it more accurate over time is is definitely the way to go. And honestly, it sounds like something you have to expect to do, whether it's a small or large company.
3: Yeah, continuous feedback, always going to be in your benefit, right?
0: Yeah,
2: and I mean, under the previous scenario, that's assuming you know where all your AWS accounts are. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, AWS I always recommend go to finance, right? Um, you, you have to know where all they're at. Yeah. Right? Um, it's no different than software spend. I think about this uh, as, as I've kind of stepped into a larger role um, at Sisense. Thinking about where money goes to will ultimately lead you to where all of your accounts and your tooling is. Um, so having a strong partnership with your finance team to see who's expensing what. Um, is a big benefit unless you can have like a cloud access security broker with, you know, an inline uh, network analysis going on. You know, I think there are elements that you can get to that information in, in reality. Now, if someone's just starting up an AWS account and it's free, yeah, that can be pretty painful. And I'm sure we've all been through that. Definitely.
0: Ty, you were also talking about, you know, it was great to that that idea of keep these questionnaires for the for the engineering team short and concise um, and get them focused on risk. Is there a particular, um, you didn't go into too much detail, you, you, you talked about a couple of the questions. You didn't get too much about particular risks that you maybe would focus on. Do you have even like a, a personal shortlist of the things that either, are the the idea of you know what keeps you up at night or even that you try to focus on first when you when an appsec team first engages with some um, with a product
3: yeah um i'll, I'll hit the first one uh, not much keeps me up at night uh, i'm in a very enjoyable position for the first time in my career where i get to sleep uh, so that's new awesome. uh, that's just brand new for me <laughs> <laughs> and i have to take a moment because past year's been fantastic <laughs> so outside of that when you start thinking about risk uh, i think we had this chat like let me ask you guys, I think this is always a tough question. This is probably the toughest, hardest-hitting question I've ever been, been asked. Uh, what's an app?
0: Yeah. Is it the URI? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That has never, in all the times that I've been doing consulting, writing scanners, everything, that it's still, it's absolutely more an art than science. And it's sometimes it's sort of like the, the counter question comes back, either how much time do I have or how much budget do you have? because sometimes it's just how complex is the functionality? You know, APIs, maybe you can walk through the endpoints, but then you need to build up state, and how many, you know, what other microservices does this microservice have to talk to? So um, already you can tell I'm rambling on in a much longer answer because, yeah, not an easy question to answer.
2: And it hasn't been for a long time, to to Ty's point, right? And so how do you know what an app is when an app is a bunch of microservices and containers all communicating via APIs that might have multiple URL entry points into the system. Are, is each of those an app? So it, it is a challenge.
3: Yep, I think that's a great point that's emerging now, is elasticity of applications. So you have all these pods just growing immediately, and point in time, they're, they're, they're probably gone. The good thing is you know they're coming from some trusted state, or some build, or some configuration. Uh, However, uh, you know, I think let's let's dive into like APIs. I think that's an area where sometimes teams may forget that there's an old API or maybe there's a version one that sat out there for like six customers and you have 20 other iterations and everyone's just talking about V21 and yet everyone forgot about the previous 20. But the first version is sitting out there without, you know, say authentication on the endpoint and those six people may be abusing the shit out of it because no one's watching them. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's been the struggle from the hygiene standpoint of what is an application. And I I think, you know, you just kind of heard it here between the three of us. It's it's not an easy answer. Yeah. And if you can crack that nut, (laughs) then you can actually
2: (laughs) apply some really basic, simple risk metrics to it. Say, look, is it Internet facing? Okay, higher risk. Does it have PII data or credit card data or whatever? Right. Then it's probably a higher risk application. But just getting to the understanding of what the app is, I think is still this big challenge for a lot of people.
3: I feel totally. like that's a good sticker for the back of a laptop, what the app is. You know, and I think that's that's an element where you know find out what's important to the business. Um you know that, that there have been times I've worked for an organization for five and a half years. There are times I've been there for like twelve months. You know it really just depends on. You know, how much fun it is, uh, how much enjoyment is coming out of the work and the results and the impact and obviously compensation within our current environment. But when you start to have a better definition of what the business cares about, I think that's where you should be spending the time. Because if you're spending, you know, I I think if you're spending all this time on say an internal application because it holds all the secrets, um, I get it. But at the same time, if the business is launching a brand new mobile application with new API endpoints, And, you know, you can't scale to the demand because you're spending so much time on the other things. Uh, You're not going to be, I'm not going to say liked, but you're not going to be perceived as someone that knows what the hell's going on inside the organization. Right. And I think brand and impact really come into play when you're driving any program, any function within an organization and choosing what to make an impact on first and how you drive that sentiment further will lead you to the gravitas to either build a massive, scalable program, or you'll find a quicker exit and be like, "Yeah, this ain't for me.
2: Does digital transformation help? I know that term is used a lot, but if you think about what that means to an organization, it means the business trying to interact at a more digital level with their customers. And those projects are the ones that you're seeing adopt some of these new agile DevOps methodologies. Is that an opportunity for security to really start to understand what the business is doing and kind of break out of their shell? Because to me, I think that would be a great opportunity for them to kind of expand beyond what they've traditionally been doing, which is maybe just a bunch of internal application protection.
3: Yeah, great question. Uh, I've been through two. I thought I was all about transformation, but at this point, it's kind of, I'm not going to say boring. Uh, I think there's just a lot of lessons and a lot of struggles as you go through it. So what that means is there's a lot of feelings that go into this and the feelings can be a little bit exhausting. uh, If you're kind of like me, like feelings are good if you're building an internal team, but feelings can be terrible if people in team members are struggling with adopting new practices, don't wanna be part of this change in the organization. Um, When you look at your change management matrix of like where there are stragglers versus where there are going to be leaders, digital transformation, it's just gonna have a spread of everything and all feelings are 100% valid. And honoring everyone's feelings in the process is going to take time and energy. So I think the transformation of learning if people are up for the challenge and being a part of that learning and that transformation at that time, like entering a program or an organization when it's at the first steps of a digital transformation, I think it can be an absolutely empowering opportunity. Plus you get to slide in all these little touch points and all these capabilities without a ton of friction because everyone's going through this learning process. Um, so I'd I, I veer on the side of absolutely. Uh, the problem that you typically emerges is again, All the historical stuff that sits in the background, sits in the data center, and you still accept crappy patterns like one way SSL um, instead of two way SSL. Like things like that um, can start to break down because you have all of this tech debt or this tribal debt that sits there because everyone's so stoked about moving to the future. Mm, Right.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because when you were talking about teams and like, or like what is an app and one of the ways I, I usually try to focus on that is, you know, find who the teams, who are the people responsible for either one of the microservices or many and so on because you're ultimately working with the teams to address problems, to understand the security model, to go through threat models, et cetera. Yep. But, and this kind of ties into the, what you were just call, noting about tech debt, what I was just describing only works if there's actually an owner for that application, but especially when you're getting into 5,000, 10,000 apps, you're going to find a ton that have no owner. And when you go and try to turn it off, suddenly a major revenue stream goes away or suddenly a whole cascading domino effect of these other apps that didn't even know they relied on it, start to complain. So I'm kind of curious how you've seen that in the past. And if you have, Good ways of, uh, you know, good advice or good ways to try to tackle those orphaned or, you know, unknown um, apps?
3: Yeah, I think business point of contact is always going to be important as far as your application inventory. Um, I think there's kind of the real owner of the application. Uh, You typically have the engineering team associated with it, but there should be some top level executive owner on top of that entire inventory and then per line of business or per function. Uh, so, so a lot of the success I found was finding kind of that initial touch point, but even before getting there, finding the accountable executive that owns that series of applications or that line of business, and then from there getting the sub list of, you know, who are the directors or who are the people that are managing the people uh, to get me down to the point of I actually have a business contact. Um, and every time you do a refresh, I think it's based on the risk of the application. So one thing we didn't talk about is kind of health and touch points of your app inventory. So getting through the first pass, it's typically going to be painful. Uh, there's no doubt about it because you're asking a lot of people to do work. Um, and then from there, if you get through that first pass, I can tell you about a time. You know, it took me three months to get through. You know, five thousand applications that got rationalized through a large banking process. And then I went to a retailer. It took nine months to get through like six thousand applications. And it's just it's going to vary based on the culture. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm thrilled about all the timelines. I think this should be fast and easy. But after that first touch, you have to figure out when is your next one. And if it's a high-risk application um, in a, say, non-DevOps shop, I, I would say once a year is probably fine. And then the lower risk is going to be the two to four years because they'll just trickle off. Uh, but if you're in a high rate of delivery, your touch points are going to be have to be that much higher because changes in teams uh, movement of owners of applications, little things like that are just gonna pop up all the time. And you're gonna have to systematically find a way to really update and keep that inventory fresh.
0: Yeah. When I was, when I, I was rattling off a, a long list of your background, we're hitting pen testing, red teaming, static analysis, dynamic analysis. We're talking about those touch points. Do you yep. have a particular um, tool or approach that you tend to prefer um, or what is, what are the, or maybe a better, a better way to say that, or what are the contexts that make you choose between like a static analysis or dynamic analysis or a pen test or, or something else
3: for that matter? Yep. I think it's contextual. Um, it's really down to the application, uh, and the organization. So find me <clears throat> right now. Uh, I work at an organization that enables business intelligence, business analytics. So basically it's a UI tier that hooks into databases and ultimately enables SQL injection. So find me a tool that can run static analysis effectively in a world that you type SQL, you get charts. And there really isn't a great opportunity there. Even things like cross-site scripting, injection, they're intentional based on the nature of the user of the application, because they're authorized, they have great access, they're usually data scientists that have all the data anyway, Uh, but figuring out how you get secure touch points into that is a much different approach than say your traditional mobile banking application. And that is something I I think you're gonna have more consistency around how those touch points look based on the maturity of the world. So web apps, I mean, we have a dime, a dozen, as far as how many web application security scanners are out there. And some of them, they're free, they're open source, and there's a really healthy community. Some of them are really expensive because they target a specific language that may be unique to your organization. Uh, But I I don't think there's a hard framework that I follow at this point anymore. I'm still a big fan of things like the Building Security and Maturity Model, BSIM, the OpenSAM, uh, which is the Software Assurance Maturity Model uh, from OWASP. I I think they're they're good places to start for measurement, uh, but I'd never recommend taking those charts or those data points and showing them to your CEO or CIO and saying, hey, look how far we've come in this great spider chart, because I'm gonna be honest, They don't give a shit. It's how secure are we? How are we doing? Are we doing the right things? Are we investing in the right places? And are you keeping all the team members happy and enabled? And I I think that's where you as an AppSec person need to make the intelligent decision as far as the right tooling and not just saying, everyone's gonna run a dynamic scanner and good luck. Well, the AppSec team now just became a support function that has to train all these developers and the developers capabilities just dropped, I don't know, 20, 25%, because now they're having to learn this new skill that is not inherent to what an engineer should be doing, which is building product. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, that's the really challenges cool. of I'm... dynamic scanning, right, Mike? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are more than a few. Uh, let me say that. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things um, is, I also like how you're describing like, paying attention to the team. In other words, it's not like you have an AppSec team and here is the context for that fantastic dynamic scatter that they could run or source analysis <laughs> or pen testing. It's more of like, and I think you you mentioned this earlier too in in the interview. Just throwing people into the same routine work is a great way to burn them out it's a great way to make them bored so that i, I want to really highlight that part of it that's coming out during this conversation because you're talking about investing in where where to reduce risk where to secure applications but also sounds like investing in the people side in terms of actually making a really functional good participating application security program as well and so, so that people care about what they're doing and they're not being burned out by the type of work that they're running into.
3: Yeah, I think it's important. Like, we all want to be happy with what we do with our time on this world. And, you know, I I think AppSec doesn't stop just within your company. I don't think information security or the mindset stops within just your program. And I think it's our duty, uh, maybe not all of our duties, but, you know, I think it is my duty um, as far as an information security professional. Like, if I can harvest... And help someone kind of mature their mindset and grow into this thing that may have already been natural inside their brain as far as asking Why does something work this way and how can I get it to benefit me in some other fashion? I think the hacker mindset and how you put on your hacker goggles are are Kind of natural they're they're inherent into your personality so when you start questioning these things you want to understand why they work and if you have been doing this thing for your career, and you can train an engineer, you can train an intern, uh, you can train, you know, a QA tester that now knows how to break into, you know, WebGoat because they've been able to use Burp Proxy for free, and now they're like, hey, I spent three hundred bucks. I went and got this burp license and I've been testing a bunch of apps and I'm like, hang on, let's talk about the gray lines of like, what's okay to test and what's not okay to test. And they're like, it's cool. I found more like testable images and I'm figuring it out. Now I'm applying it at work. What can happen in that moment. And I've found a lot of solace in is that that person can become one of the best pen testers that can become one of the best red teamers on your team, uh, and it may take a year or two. Uh, Maybe it takes five years, uh, but I think the element there is you're helping grow people into finding more joy in what they do in their work. Um, And the coolest thing for me is like one specific company I worked for, an engineer joined our team, took on static analysis, ran the hell out of it for about a year and a half, two years, moved back to a town where his family was from to grow his family. And he rolled a static analysis program for a very large retailer and getting a call from a friend in my network saying, where did you find this guy? And it's just like, well, he always already had it. He just needed the opportunity to learn like security specific things. And now applying that knowledge has changed his whole career trajectory. So I think that's the benefit, right? Like maybe it doesn't change the career trajectories, but if it asks one more question, if it prompts one more user, not just to click through that, okay, I accept that this site doesn't have a certificate or question that email that looks funky. I think we're kicking butt, you know? And I think the reality is more people are becoming aware of security and the implications of things like privacy now, uh, which are an emerging topic that I think people should fundamentally care about.
2: Yeah. And you're creating security champions Internal to the teams, which is fantastic, because then it's somebody internally bringing up those security items instead of this, you know, external security group and, and creating those internal security champions. I think are awesome. Plus, it allows them to change potentially change your career trajectory, like in, in that particular case.
3: Hundred percent, yeah. I, I I love the champions mindset in the programs. Um, there's pros and cons to it. Uh, everyone kind of has an opinion about it, but. Uh, I, I'm just all about an optional program that gives away free swag, and then, you know, just recognizes folks that are making the company better. And if you can do that and not to put too many confines around what it must be, um, you will find so many people just thinking things are cool. You know, they're like, hey, I'm showing up to your class because I want a freaking bobblehead that you created for this program. But they learned about security, so it's a win-win, right? And I think that's an element that. Uh, Sometimes we forget because it may be somewhat of a buzzword in certain organizations that are trying to get something way too mature for their company off the ground when they can just start with, hey, let's do an optional security training and see who shows up. Yep.
0: That's great. Totally. Well, we've had a... Podcast, the great interview, this episode, and hopefully lots of people show up to listen to it. Um, Ty, thank you for being here. Any final, any final words, or anything that we should be looking out from you on the horizon?
3: Yeah, just two things. Um, I, I would love to plug. Uh, I just did a white paper called "Security Touchpoints and the Big Data Lifecycle" with Cobalt IO. Um, I've never done business with them. We just do a bunch of marketing stuff together, and uh, this was one of the cooler projects we did uh, with writing a white paper in simple language. Uh, as far as AppSec people or security people that may have strayed away from what does big data look like and then how do you secure it? Um, So we put together a simple white paper that really outlines a couple of touch points, hopefully things that you're already doing to empower data scientists and data engineers. Um, Yeah, just go check that out. It's on Cobalt's website or hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, Ty Spano, and I think that's that's an element where I'm always open to a conversation. Uh, The other element I would would love to just land on is uh, the big piece around security. We've kind of hinted at it uh, within this talk today, Uh, but my ask to the rest of the security community is getting off of our stools, getting our butts out of seats and actually going and being part of the opportunity of driving a greater culture of security, but also empowering the business to just kick ass. And uh, if you're at a company and you have stock options or you have unvested options that may become stock, um, don't you want your company to succeed? And I think where I'm going to pull back and say, if you're not happy as a security person and you're that curmudgeon that no one wants to work with, please do your best to find what drives you, and makes you happy and get out of that role and go do that next thing. That's just going to be part of a better opportunity altogether. Cause I think we all benefit when we're happy and excelling. Um, so yeah, those are my two things.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to hear it because I I love that message and definitely, you know, let's get rid of the cynicism and focus on let's actually make something better. Let's fix a problem or just move on.
3: Let's do some cool shit. Just like this talk. Thanks for the time, guys. I really appreciate (laughs) it.
0: Thanks again, Ty. And thanks again, Matt. We're going to take a quick
1: break and then we're going to return with news of the week. Too many alerts and not enough action? It's time to get SaltStack. SaltStack is an intelligent IT automation platform that detects security issues in critical business systems and then actually fixes them. With SaltStack, security and IT teams work together to define custom security policies with certified checks for CIS, DISA STIGs, and more. You can scan systems for millions of compliance checks in minutes, remediate compliance and vulnerability issues with powerful automation, all in a single platform. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash saltstack to learn more. Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi-hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTPR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records, all from a single unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Welcome back to Application
0: Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman. We need your help in a survey we are running for research purposes for an upcoming webcast. Please visit securityweekly.com five stages of automation maturity to submit your responses to our five stages of automation maturity survey. We will share the results in a webcast in November. This year's Compass Cybersecurity Symposium is being held at Twin River Casino in Lincoln, Rhode Island on September 25th. It's just 15 minutes outside of Providence. The venue has plenty of free and easy parking. Speakers include social engineering expert Chris Hadnagy and Security Weekly podcast founder Paul Asadorian. Use the discount code SW2019 to save $20 on registration. Matt, it's been uh, two weeks and there's, I think, quite a bit of interesting news for us to catch up on. Um, Probably the most interesting and the most notable so far is a slew of exploit chains and related vulnerabilities that were reported by uh, Google's Project Zero in the iPhones, um, uh, throughout the iPhone stack. And what was interesting about it is there are obviously some interesting political aspects to the story um, because of who this was targeting. Um, apparently, this was found on websites pointing to a small minority population in China, the Uyghurs. And um, these were sites, however, that were blocked from internal access, apparently, within China, but were available externally. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things to look at here as we, t- as we see, obviously, as we continue to see, I should say, the Android and iPhone ecosystems just be- to encompass you know billions and billions of people. On an AppSec side though, I did want to dive into one um, part of this by pointing to Azaria from Azaria Labs. Um, We mentioned her in the past, Uh, a couple months ago, she had um, put together a free arm Um, uh, emulator that was run by a browser. She's also taken some of the heap exploits here that were reported against iPhones and walking through some of the engineering aspects from it. So if you really want to dive into the technical aspects of these vulnerabilities, um, starting off with the very first one is, and from Azaria's websites in the, in the show notes, uh, it's a really cool technical dive. In addition to, and it's a good complement to the technical notes that are provided already, and from Ian Beer in the uh, Project Zero website as well.
2: Yeah, what I thought was interesting in here is uh, a lot some web browser exploits, which I, I think we've seen aspects of this before. The one that was in, the couple that were interesting were the, some kernel vulns, right? exploits at the kernel level but two sandbox escapes right one of the things that makes ios so unique over the android is the ability to uh, contain a potential attack and not allow it to spread laterally to the other areas through their sandboxing technology but two of these exploits actually exploited the sandbox escape stuff so i thought those were really really interesting because we've seen the ios devices be pretty secure compared to android i And politically, right, this is Google's zero day going after iOS, which Google has Android. So I thought that was another interesting slant to this research.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it it definitely shows on on the technical aspects, calling out like these chains do require the fact that it's one thing to get a Safari breakout. But then you need that Safari to you need another exploit to get out of that Safari sandbox and yet another exploit into the kernel. Um, And so it's really showing and I think one of the cool things that Azaria was highlighting in in her follow up notes on this and her observations was that there's a lot of engineering that has to go into um, breaking out of these hardened devices because it's no longer one really simple buffer overflow that gives you the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. And um, one of the other things that we'll see, too, is there's a lot of hardware that's actually tied to these security as well, both in the sense of trusted enclaves. But newer chips providing support for things like authenticated pointers, and that's what would make it even harder for exploit chains to buy. You know, you're now going to need that sandbox escape kernel exploit, but you're also going to need some way to have an Oracle into predicting, you know, bypassing ASLR or getting into authenticated pointers on the more modern iPhone Um Models, So it'll be really interesting to just to watch this as it develops over time and of course as part of that broader picture of um, Apple in particular just recently saying we're going to actually provide debuggable or debug based um, models to researchers so that they can actually improve their relationship with the researcher community in order to make these sandboxing techniques that much more robust.
2: Yeah, and they upped their bug bounty, which we covered a few weeks back, for some of these additional exploits. I, I think what was it, the remote, remote code execution from on iOS was like a million-dollar bounty or something like that, right? So they're trying right. to also leverage that debug in these bug bounty programs to also secure all these different components in the iOS uh, platform as well.
0: Absolutely. And now speaking of someone who was, I believe, using iOS and tweeting from their phone (laughs) um, at Jack, his uh, Twitter account started spewing a bunch of particularly vile, racist things because he fell victim to a SIM swap. And this was interesting because here you have an account with uh, two factor authentication turned on. You have, a, you, know, you have an application security program that's making sure the app is resistant to buffer overflows, to all types of other attacks, authorization, bypasses, et cetera. And yet when we look at, we can maybe pull this into the supply chain umbrella a little bit, but your SIM associated with your phone, if someone can social engineer your provider and basically swap that number into your own SIM, and then you can tweet directly, directly via SMS. You've just bypassed all of that great security infrastructure.
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting attack. I obviously, created a bunch of uh, uh, int- you know uh, buzz over the past couple of weeks since we haven't had a show. But it isn't. It, it's an it, it's a combination of SIM hijack and SMS, which is why Twitter's turned SMS off of uh, their platform for now until they figure out a fix. But a very interesting attack vector here in, in what they did in, in order to make this work. Um, definitely some damage control at Twitter right now just because of all the issues associated with this one. Right.
0: And I think I want, another reason I wanted to highlight it, it, it also speaks to the idea of from a AppSec team, a product security team, when you're going through a threat model this type of scenario, one of the things you could also consider is that here's an, here is a, a, an account with two-factor authentication turned on. But the way and so, for example, when you send a tweet from your app, that tweet can be signed that signing can say, yes, I'm at, you know, here's an attestation that the user at one point completed their two factor authentication and it's coming from this device. So it's signed or here is an encrypted token or something that's proving that with SMS. You don't have anything beyond those you know, few characters of the text message, and the identity just says, oh, here is the phone number it's coming from. So in a way, you know, it's easy to say this was a predictable problem, but what I'm getting at is that just being able to send a tweet via SMS means you've also obviated all of these aspects of being able to sign who it's coming from, and you've fallen back from a strong identity assurance from two factors into a relatively weak identity saying just this particular phone number. So I think there's a good lesson there in the ways of trying to revisit and improve threat models when we're talking about what can account do when it has two-factor authentication turned off? Maybe there are some things that actually should, some functionality that in fact should be disabled. Yeah, and I'm seeing more
2: SMS style attacks. I, I got a text this weekend somebody I don't know um, hmm. saying, sorry, I'm busy, I can't talk right now. Well, I didn't click on yeah. that. I just deleted it right away because I know yep. there are people that are using SMS as an attack vector to redirect you to a site that then uh, you know exploits a vulnerability on your phone. And so you're going to see more of this. Now, granted, I, I, I'm used to seeing this stuff and I don't answer a phone call and I don't answer <laughs> a, uh, uh, an SMS for people I don't know. I just ignore the call or, or delete the message, right? But not everybody does that. They'll see this weird message crafted this way, dig into the, the SMS text, which then may lead you down a link for something, and the next thing you know, you got exploits all over your phone. So just word, word to the wise out there. Just, if you don't know who it's coming from, look out.
0: Look out. And I think an additional word to the, to the wise out there, the word or a word to those who didn't realize, is that um, SMS can also be used, so there's two-factor SMS getting your one-time code. There's also potentially SMS that's used directly for account recovery. So you may have a strong two-factor authentication turned on using a authenticator app, um, like the Google Authenticator or Authy or one of the others that's out there. But the account recovery flow assuming, for example, that you don't have access to that authenticator app may still fall onto a SIM, uh, you know, an SMS. And so you may have 2FA, but still be vulnerable to account takeover due to that recovery flow. So it's one of those things to call out there for, both for consumers, go through and review what your different accounts look like, as well as for engineering teams in uh, designing these particular workflows, making sure that these areas can be hardened as much as they can be to essentially what boiled down to social engineering attacks against um, uh, uh, the cell providers. Um, another really quick thing I wanted to revisit quickly. Um, we talked about XM um, a vulnerability in the past, and now um, uh, there's just a RCE due to a buffer overflow um, comes off of research that I, was related to Qualys research. Also, um, I think Tenable was involved for a bit as well. Um, but I wanted to highlight because it shows the use of a null escape string um, basically within a character string so backslash zero and I thought that was pretty good because it's a little bit of a throwback to the nostalgic days of house when when hacking was simple and you actually didn't need to go through a sandbox escape through safari into the kernel etc that you know modern iphone exploitation we they were just talking about needs but it also talked you know it's a great example of what are the expectations of what the data is you're handling, and the difference between, at at what point do you normalize data and then do your security check on it. So in this case, a backslash zero could be a null, which is a null terminated string, which back in the days of Perl, there were lots of really egregious vulnerabilities associated with null terminated strings in exactly this type of way. So we haven't seen this class of problems go away, um, we've just seen them become less prevalent, which is good, but we still have just seen them being talked about in broader terms now between normalization and doing when to do security checks and um, doing basically a, a different take on the idea of input validation. And I wanted to say that because that leads us into, I think, a, another article that you highlighted, um seven steps to web application security. So this well, I thought, just a, I, yeah, I thought go going
2: to the fuzzing one was actually a little closer, right? Uh, yeah. Because one of the things Fuzzing 101 does, right, is looks for potential invalid input, right? And and we've talked fuzzing a lot. And I pulled the fuzzing article out because I think it's a good refresher for people who don't really know the basics around fuzzing and, and what fuzzing is there for.
0: That's a great point. And um, I added to it, too. There's another – there's a professor from um, University of Utah Um, who does great work in compilers and in security, mostly around the C and C++ languages. And uh, he's written also about fuzzing as well. And he added a blog post uh, coincidentally about a month ago, how to make your code more fuzzable. So what we're really talking about is an approach to code that says humans aren't really good at reviewing code. There's a lot of code out there. So how can we automate this? And how can we automate this from a security perspective? So the idea of fuzzing is there's sort of two broad approaches to it. One is sort of what we call it mutation, where you're just saying, here's here's the input that something expects. And this application may be a string um, like in XM and maybe it's strings associated with talking to servers or email, things like that. Or maybe it is a MPEG or an MP3. And because this is what people love to do, fuzzing codecs and fuzzing things like VLC. So what they'll do is they'll say, here is something that the application expects, now just start randomly mutating it, see what happens. Does the application crash? Does it reject it nicely? Does it fail gracefully? Or does that crash actually lead to something that might be exploitable? There's also another approach called kind of like generative fuzzing, which basically says, We're going to take the components of this particular language like JavaScript or C and we're just going to start putting it together in lots of really unexpected and to be honest, really dumb ways, but ways that are actually perfectly legit because we want to actually test the correctness of the program. And so that's what a lot of people have been doing, for example, when they're starting to fuzz browsers. What can JavaScript do? Because JavaScript is both a very powerful and a very messy particular language. And um, th- there's even one example I'd like to talk about is uh, Jesse Rudiman, um, who was a Mozilla security uh, researcher, security programmer. Way back in 2007, he gave a presentation at Black Hat called JS Fun Fuzz. And it was another example of using a fuzzer to find vulnerabilities, in this case, Mozilla. And um, you know, you ran some code, basically unleash the fuzzer, let it run for 24, 48, you know, 72 hours, and going, and it's just going to find bugs for you. So it's a great way to approach um, security and basically instrument your code in a way that hopefully you can find crashes that are just part of quality control, but also find crashes that are part of security and security things that should be fixed.
2: Yeah, like null pointers or looking for memory leaks or passing URLs and all kinds of different things that can be tested for in a more automated way that would potentially reduce some of these vulnerabilities that we talk about today. The the XM is a perfect example of that. Throw at the null character and what happens, right? Uh, You could have caught that a while ago, right? So the importance of fuzzing, I think, Mike, to your point is, It's this automated way for us to test non-expected criteria. When we build an app, we sit down, we say, these are the requirements. Okay, that's great, but that's not the data we're going to get necessarily when this app goes live. How do you test for all those out-of-band use cases? And fuzzing is a great way to test for a lot of that in a more automated
0: way. Absolutely. It's the idea that, you know, people and our, our QA teams, for example, are great at putting together use cases. So here is a positive test case, here's a negative test case. They're not always so great at putting together what you could call abuse cases. And then if they are, they're maybe creating, you know, a few dozen of them where a fuzzer can do a few thousand, if not tens of thousands of different cases and just figure out here's a path that looks like maybe it is leading to a way that's gonna be either more exploitable or just causing problems. And I wanted to add too, um, for example, you were calling out like null pointers and, and heap problems. Um, those are fantastic things that fuzzing can find. And even if you're writing in a language like a Python, for example, that doesn't, you know, where you can't directly manipulate memory or d- directly manipulate pointers, it's still important to fuzz that language because you're still going to be parsing URLs, for example. You're still going to be parsing XML. You're still going to potentially parse strings with null escape characters in them. They're then passed on to a C-based API that is going to possibly now be confused by the length of a string that you gave it and where that null terminator showed up. So it's not like this is just about C or C++. It definitely can be applied to any of the numerous uh, programming languages that you're developing in.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then now we lead back into the seven um, you know, steps to web app security. And the first one, obviously, is the user input, which, again, fuzzing is a really good example of how yep. do you test for some of that. Some of the other ones here, though, Mike, I thought were pretty interesting. And number two that shows up is disable... Um, functionality you're not using right so think about this right you pull down the php library and when you pull down that binary think of all the things that are embedded in there it's Mm -hmm. got curl and shadow and all kinds of stuff right are you actually using that stuff because if you're not how do you disable it so the vulnerabilities that sit in those libraries can't be used against
0: you for for uh, exploits later that, that that's a great point. And that's where there's a couple of things. I don't think I called them out in, in this episode um, or in the show notes, but uh, WordPress has had a couple of problems as, you know, unsurprisingly so. Um, but if you were disabling certain like the PHP handler, um, protocol handler, um, unused functionality, if you don't need it, turn it off. You would have actually been protected against some of the recent exploit scenarios within PHP. Um, so that's a great point to say, just if you don't need it, turn it off. Uh, another one that I really liked, um you know, well, I'll skip forward a little bit, meaning there was a, this the, one of the items was mainstream, the appsec team. And I think that uh-huh. ties right back into everything that Ty was talking about is basically saying, is your appsec team just kind of sitting behind the desk waiting for the phone to ring and saying, oh, yep, time to go help you." Or are they going out there and, and they, are they actually participating with the DevOps team? Are they participating in the development of code? Not necessarily writing code, although that could be one of the options, but at least understanding what's going on.
2: Yeah, um, and it's just not the, the security testing, which is in here, but it's yes. actually getting security engaged with the development teams. It's great that security does its pen test every once in a while, but that's not mainstreaming security with the development teams to actually be a little more proactive than
0: those periodic security tests. Absolutely. I think that type of aspect of, um, it talks about ongoing training as well. And I'm so happy that it used the word ongoing in there because the, the worst type of training is a, a new hire employee training that says, cool, watch this, passively watch this very, very boring even if it has you know high production values um, you know security awareness program now you you know click on the, you know answer a couple questions true false about what's phishing what's not phishing and where to report this and then you're done and it has no no other training happens and this does tie in you know when you do training on an ongoing basis that's what starts to tie into the idea of a security champion program. In other words, it can be a little bit self-selecting. You know, Ty did allude to, you know, there's pros and cons of it. But if you can set up a model where you can say, here's some information we're going to make available to developers. Here's how to, here's just, in other words, here's what SQL injection is. Here's what cross-site scripting is. And hopefully people can show up, start to think about that, or even... Here is what a SimSwap attack is. So pick on something that is topical in the news, talk about it, start to seed that security mentality within other developers. I think that is as good a training as any other. And honestly, I think if you make it interactive with people, it's a lot better than just that self-service kind of click through a PowerPoint presentation type of training.
2: Yeah, if you actually take a number of the recommendations in this article, you'll get that ongoing training. Because if you're doing fuzzing to validate user input, maybe you're using aspects of that and other tools into your QA process, which it talks about that. If security is being mainstream with the dev teams, uh, if you're doing a number of these things that ongoing training is going to happen naturally because you are going to be testing the application through the process. You're going to be identifying issues along the way. Security is going to be very visible with you. That is, a, that is a learning process that's ongoing without this. Well, let me go to my little site and go do my awareness training that and get through it. I mean, this is real life, like every day kind of happenings. That's that's better, way better on-hands continuous training than, than most of those awareness
0: programs. Absolutely. And then, and to kind of round things out, so we're talking about like workman developers, working with, we're, we're tying on the, the left side of the shift left, um, you know, mantra right now. There is also, you know, once you do deploy an application, um, it, it does still require some care and feeding or at least some attention. Um, And that's where things like, say, okay, maybe you do have some regular security assessment, whether it's DAS, SAS, pen testing. Um, This also does explicitly call out as investing in a bug bounty program. And um, I'm curious what your reaction is to that real quick. Well, I'm not sure every
2: organization can do that easily. And I don't know that every organization is ready for a bug bounty program. Look, you've got some great big programs out there for some of the major vendors that are out there. I'm not sure every organization this is relevant. I'm not sure they're ready maturity wise. I mean, I could be wrong. I just I don't think every organization needs to invest in a bug bounty program.
0: Yeah, no, I think you know these seven steps. I don't think these were actually put in any particular order. Um, but if we were to you know start to jumble them around in, a, in an order of preference. Recommendations: I definitely throw that bug bounty at the end, the very last thing you do, because bug bounty is a terrible way to start an appsec program. Um, it also can be an inefficient and a pretty expensive way to find the vulnerabilities within your within your applications. Um, where it can be better for you and for teams is that you have um, you, you know you have some type of mechanisms where you're looking at code where developers know about either dealing with user input or doing output encoding or you know their code is dealing with the context of user generated data things like that Um, you have a training program you actually have a security team that is paying attention to this program um, and to the developers and helping them build out uh, frameworks adding frameworks to their code bases and at that point then you can start to say cool bug bounty program may start to make sense now because that will be more of your continuous monitoring and will help you find those corner cases uh, of, of things you may have forgotten.
2: Yeah, it's yeah definitely an expensive way to start it. You Do all these other steps first. Do fuzzing, do periodic reviews, engage with the security team and make them uh, part of the process. Test security in your QA process. You're going to find a lot more bugs in, in those First four steps that'll make your application way more secure before you got to spend money on a bug bounty program.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's where uh, let me pull this other article into this as part of that because it's about um, securing the CI/CD pipeline and where where the risks may be lurking within it. Mm-hmm. Because if you haven't even started, you know, let's not jump all the way to bug bounty without also making sure that we're looking at our CI/CD pipeline. And this comes to some of the classic aspects we talk about like supply chain as you said if you're going out and downloading all this code and all these major you know programming language frameworks maybe you don't need all the functionality in there are you turning off any of it also let alone where are you getting it from is this coming from are you actually is this coming from the um, organ you know the, the open source repos sources? Are these sources actually signed? Are you even checking those signatures for that matter? And are you doing some checking just to say there's no known vulnerabilities here? And then we get into just code aside, how are you handling the secrets so that mm-hmm. one service can talk to another or this service can talk to the database? Because that's where when we start talking about like cloud, you know, AWS and its IAM models, it's nice and granular, but messing that up is the things that turns everything from, here's our open S3 bucket or our Elasticsearch instance, or some more nuanced cases where here is one particular front-end web server that might be popped, but then for some reason, also has access to read all of these other resources that technically it really doesn't need access to.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation Paul and I have a lot in our day-to-day business because of the work we're doing with our software. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're asking the questions around where do we store secrets? Are we going to use AWS Secret Manager? Are we going to use something else? Because some of the stuff was embedded in scripts. It's not where it belongs, right? You got to pull all this stuff out. Where are you going to put it and keep it secure? Logs. Paul's been doing a lot on logging and making sure we have all the log data uh, so that we can go back and troubleshoot not only performance but security of the application. Now, these are these are things that are kind of outside of what developers think about when they're developing code. The, these are parts of the overall operational process. These are parts about right. the, the, the tool chain itself and, and how things are getting into the different environments. How, are you using the right credentials when you shift from test to staging to production? right i mean all these things are, are just a lot of challenges that organizations struggle with which can also create back doors into your overall applications
0: absolutely and that's why we have the ops side of devops and why those that those either two different teams or those roles should be falling you know they, those should be closely aligned so that so that people can appreciate oh this is where my secret's going and that's the implication and what's the better way to do this and one of the things to, to kind of maybe um, uh, add to a little bit, I did pull out just a, a relatively small article about Rails 6, um, saying that um, the, the new Rails 6 has a new filter or improved filtering capability for logging, as we were just talking about, and essentially for redacting logs. So that, yes, you as you rightly pointed out, developers need logs to be able to debug What's going on? You know, obviously software isn't perfect, let alone the security problems that come up, just bugs happen um, and they need logs. Logs can be informative, but you also don't want to have, to have those logs become now yet another source of risk because you're accidentally, as we've seen in the news in the you know, several, um, several times in the past, passwords going into logs or PII data for that matter, going into logs or even credit card numbers. I'm um, going into logs so seeing that these frameworks making having robust ways to help with logging as well as to redact this type of information I think is good it, it seems to be kind of a slowly building process but it's a good sign that I think these DevOps teams are talking amongst each other and saying hey we want to do the right thing please give us the tools to be able to do so
2: yeah just ask Paul the the fun of parsing our custom logs. We we did a segment on it on PSW a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a learning process, and you're not going to get it perfect. But if you want to know how to construct logs better, so your log analyzers can analyze them better, you should go to Paul's Security Weekly a couple of weeks ago. Pull that episode with uh, the Gravwell guys because. We learned all the things
0: you shouldn't do when it comes to building (laughs) your own application (laughs) logs. That is, I I find that the best way to learn. Make the mistake, hopefully, just once, and then do the the right thing or do a better thing afterwards.
3: (laughs) Yes, we hope so. We hope so.
0: Well, we also hope that everyone enjoyed our interview with Ty Sabano, as well as all the news we've gone through here. And I want to say thank you again, uh, Matt, for a great conversation. Always a pleasure. So thanks everyone for joining us. We will see you next week on Application Security Weekly.